Have you ever had someone give you a compliment and you just like stumbled through an awkward cringe session of not knowing how to take it? This happened to me recently. Someone gave me a really kind compliment and my response to it was so cringe that it revealed something that was, uh, shall we say, less than ideal. I wanted to read a piece today called The Dark Side of Perfectionism and I think this uh, has a lot to say about a more healthy way of living and um, about how we might see ourselves in the light of God and how we might see God and ourselves in a more proper way so that we can live with more peace, so that we can live with more joy. Um, you know, it says somewhere in scripture that the joy of the Lord is our strength and, um, you know, that is something that I've always struggled with in an area that um, I'm not natural uh, in. So. I hope this is of use to you. I got a lot out of this piece, and so I wanted to read it for you here today. In its healthy manifestations, perfectionism motivates people to strive for excellence. This motive is key to the greatest human endeavors. It is difficult to imagine anyone becoming a violin virtuoso, a world-class ballet dancer, or a notable artist without a measure of that particular intolerance for mediocrity in oneself at least in a given domain. And that's very key, I thought, because I've been listening to Andy Stanley recently, uh, and he's doing a series on marriage, which is amazing, um, by the way. But he's such a good teacher and, and writer, and I was thinking about part of the reason that he's so effective is that he's so specific about what he wants to say. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't just say everything every time he opens his mouth. He really drills into one specific thing. You know, people that are excellent in, in any area tend to really lean into that one area or those few things that they're good at and really not be ashamed of the things they're good at and not try to fight the things that they, you know, might be more uh, geared towards, but they lean into those things. And so, um, yeah, so um, let me keep going here. At other times, perfectionism takes a different and self-destructive form. Unhealthy perfectionism leads us to spend more time brooding than actually attempting to do anything. Why? There are, I think, two main bases of unhealthy and some would say neurotic perfectionism. One is a tendency to shift the focus of attention from the task to how success or failure would reflect on us. Of course, in doing anything, we are more or less aware of the fact that both success and failure would show something about us, and we are not indifferent to what that something would be. But when we are focused on a task, this thought is the periphery of our attention, not the focal point. Not so for the perfectionist. Perfectionists are preoccupied with what success or failure would show about them. This is a problem because you can only do a good job if you pay attention to what you are doing. If you are thinking about something else, anything really, but in this case, yourself, your mind is not where it should be, given the task you are facing. There's another path to unhealthy perfectionism. The perfectionist is fixated on the idea that the project at hand must be the best thing he or she has ever done. Writer Elizabeth Talent captures this second pitfall well. Her first short story collection, published by a prestigious press, and well-received by critics, appeared while Talent was still in her late 20s. She published two more short story collections over the course of the next 10 years. 
but after that, she published absolutely nothing for more than two decades. In her autobiography, Scratched, a memoir of perfectionism, Talent offers an honest and moving account of her struggle with the perilous currents of perfectionism. As a perfectionist, she held the belief that she could outdo herself on the very next try. This wishful belief in the proximity of stardom proved intoxicating. It is as though the perfectionist is reaching for the horizon, which always seems within our grasp, but never is. What makes success even less likely is the perfectionist's romanticized version of it, the hope for effortlessness. In Talent's case, that meant expecting that the beauty of well-crafted sentences will somehow come down from the sky and pour directly onto the page, complete. The problem for Talent and other perfectionists is that outdoing oneself on the very next try is statistically improbable even if you put in a good deal of effort. On any given occasion, our performance is likely to be close to our own average, though if we persevere over time, we can shift our average so that what was once the height of our achievement becomes our mean or even the least that we are capable of. The perfectionist predicament is worsened further by the fact that anything short of one's biggest accomplishment yet is seen as a failure of the current enterprise. And I deal with this a lot. Like, anything good about my life, I will just check that box and I'll go on to the next unmet desire, the next unmet goal, the next thing to work on. That I will not allow the last box that was checked, the last thing that was dealt with, the last um, goal that was fulfilled. I won't really dwell on that. I won't... Uh, in an unhealthy way, I won't really um, just soak that in for a little bit before moving on. This all but guarantees a failure in the perfectionist's own estimation. There are two options only for the mind infected with unhealthy perfectionism. Unearthly beauty or a hideous miscarriage. Much is made sometimes of the psychic propellant of perfectionism, its deeper power source. Talent, for instance, believes that hers had to do with a mother whose coldness left a deep mark on her psyche. Elizabeth Talent's mother, much to the dismay of a hospital nurse, refused to take the newborn Elizabeth in her arms because the baby was scratched all over. Baby Elizabeth had scratched herself in utero. The mother's words, you were all scratched, uttered years later in a recounting of the story, serve as a refrain of the book. Underneath is a sentiment of self-incrimination. You did it to yourself. Talent had to show herself perfect to make up for scratching herself in her mother's womb. The more important question, however, is not how unhealthy perfectionism begins, but how it may be parried and perhaps turned into a healthier counterpart, the drive to excel. I believe a realistic appraisal of the situation of how antithetical to the goal of success it is to accept an all-or-nothing approach. It's precisely this tendency to get cozy with one's own perfectionism that must be resisted. Unhealthy perfectionism, then, begins with an intoxicating promise of a big success in the very near future. But we can only maintain a belief of this sort for so long before it becomes clear the promise was a false one. Then the intoxication gradually turns into something different acceptance of one's identity as a perfectionist, and from here, of the certainty of failure. You tell yourself that unless you are going to cause a sensation, a real stir, 
there is no point in attempting anything. But to cause a sensation is unlikely, so being a perfectionist, you conclude, is better that you do nothing. After all, if anything you can possibly achieve is sure to be a failure by your current standards, then why bother? At this stage, perfectionism lures us into inactivity. It kills us. Of course, chances are that if Talent had continued writing during those two decades, she would have surpassed her early accomplishments. Maybe not in the first or second or even third try, but eventually. Unhealthy perfectionism, then, is not simply a desire for perfection, but a desire for success without any intermediate failures, without false starts. It is a yearning for a path to greatness that amounts to a constant progression whereby one's next achievement improves on all previous ones. That is simply not an option for humans. Now I want to read a piece about the four false beliefs that keep us in a cycle of perfectionism and misery. The first false belief is the performance trap. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. Those who struggle with a performance trap have a fear of failure. Perfectionism and manipulating others to achieve success, they can also cowardly withdraw from healthy risk. God's answer to the performance trap is his justification. This means that God has not only forgiven me of my sins, but has also granted me the righteousness of Christ. Therefore I am pleasing to the Father at my very essence as a son or daughter of God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second false belief is the approval addict. I must be approved by certain others to feel good. The person who is the approval addict fears rejection and is oversensitive to criticism. They will withdraw from others to avoid disapproval. God's answer to this false belief is reconciliation. This means that although I was one time hostile to God and alienated from Him, I am now forgiven and have been brought into an intimate relationship with Him. Consequently, I am totally accepted by God. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. The third false belief is the blame game. Those who will fail, including me, are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. Those who suffer from the blame game fear punishment. They also try to punish others, and their drive is to avoid failure. God's answer to this problem is propitiation, which means that by his death on the cross, Christ satisfies God's wrath, and therefore we are loved by God. 1 John 4, 9 In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we could live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The fourth false belief is shame. I am what I am 
I cannot change. I am hopeless. Those who suffer from shame are marked by feelings of hopelessness. Shame is also marked by inferiority, passivity, a loss of creativity, isolation, and withdrawal from others. God's answer for shame is regeneration, which means that when we place faith in Christ, we become a new creation. What false beliefs have you lived with that have prevented you from living a life of significance? In each of us, I think there's a sort of self-destructive impulse, and I know that certain people have it more strongly than others, struggle with it more than others. I think this is often due to pain that we experience when we're growing up, and I don't know that that's altogether optional. I think regardless of who your parents are or what your upbringing is like, there will be some suffering, and there will be some uh, you know, misuse of words, and, and there will be some pain. So I think this is possibly just a part of growing up. But in some ways, it can be much harder to accept the forgiveness of God, the love of God, for religious people than to accept even his justice or his wrath or most of the other things about him. Part of forgiveness is a release of control. That if I work off my sins, if I shame myself, if I live in a sort of misery, in a sort of martyrdom, then I'll feel like I've done it enough to be worthy of being forgiven, to be worthy of moving on. And by creating my own paradigm of forgiveness and shame, I get to stay on my terms. I get to not owe anyone anything, but that the true and kind beating heart of God that will just forgive me because he is so much bigger, because he loves me, because I am his son, causes me to live on his terms. And part of me wants that more than anything else. But part of me does not want that and resists that, that I would rather, in many ways, live on my own terms and suffer on my own terms than to live on anyone else's terms, even if that meant to be forgiven to be free, to be loved, to be known, to be accepted. And I believe that often the people that we look up to, the flaws that they have, the lack of love that they may have shown, the harshness that people have shown to each of us in our lives. Maybe you had moments where you were really vulnerable and someone really took advantage of that and really hurt you. In those moments cause us to be very skeptical of any true love, of any true forgiveness, of any true acceptance. And so this is a very long process of walking out of living in a world of shame and of repayment by self-hatred. And I do not believe in this form of Christianity which just says that there are no moral standards and God loves you because he really doesn't believe in right or wrong. He does but good is a lack of exploitation. That sin is exploiting us and exploiting others. And he wants us to live with purity so that we could be void of fracture, so that we could be void of contradiction, so that we could be whole, so that we could be free from our vices. And that the standards are a pathway 
to be free of contradiction, to be free of misery, to be free of exploitation, to be whole, to be alive, to be filled with joy and peace and goodness. The rules are a guide. The love is a destination. I hope these pieces have meant something to you. They certainly uh, meant a lot to me when I uh, read them, and I just wanted to uh, pass this along. I love you guys. I hope you're having a good week.